You're listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Eaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Hi, folks. Thanks for tuning in. My guest for this episode is Kate from Eating with the Ecosystem. Eating with the Ecosystem is a nonprofit group founded in 2014 with the mission to provide a place-based approach to sustaining New England's wild seafood through flourishing food webs, healthy habitats, and short adaptive seafood supply chains. If you love seafood or just want to expand your knowledge of what's available to us, this podcast is for you. Among the many things Kate covers, she tells us about the cookbook the organization has for sale, the dinners they host, their food boat mobile seafoods kiosk, their citizen scientist and eat like a fish programs. Some of the key areas Kate highlights in our chat are the benefits of eating a variety of local species, focusing on a place-based selection of seafood, and the importance of supporting local fishermen in your area. Once again, my wife joined me for this podcast to ask the clever questions. To learn more, be sure to visit eatingwiththeecosystem.org. From there, you'll be able to see all of their upcoming events and learn more about their programs. I hope you enjoy. Well, Kate, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. What is the name of your organization? So I work for a nonprofit called Eating with the Ecosystem. Were you the founder of it? I actually wasn't the founder. I'm the first full-time employee, but it was founded by a group of fishermen, scientists, and chefs. Um, And Sarah Schumann was kind of one of the leaders of our founders. She was our first board president, um, and it was kind of her idea initially to start the organization. And actually, before it was even an organization, it was actually a dinner series. So (laughs) it started between these fishermen scientists and chefs where they worked with the restaurant to kind of curate a menu that really told a story about the local ecosystems that were producing our seafood as well as the fisheries that were harvesting it. And so they'd invite scientists to come speak on the ecosystem level um, and fishermen to come speak about the fisheries perspective. And then the chef would, of course, prepare a delicious meal. Um, and people and we were featuring a lot of local species, but people had never really heard of a lot of them or had never really eaten a lot of them. And so they ended up being really popular people really enjoyed the educational aspect as well as mm. the fun food aspect um, and so they kind of encouraged us to keep going um, and so eventually in 2014 they became a nonprofit. What was it? Was it at a restaurant, the first event? Yeah. So the first one was actually in Bristol at the Hourglass Brasserie, which is no longer a restaurant, but um, Riz Ahmed was the chef and owner of the Hourglass Brasserie. He now actually works for Johnson & Wales University as a professor, um, but he still works with us. He actually was the author um, of the recipes for our cookbook, Simmering the Sea. So we still work very closely with him. Yeah, I saw that cookbook on your website. How many? How many recipes are in there? Um, so we have recipes for about 40 different species, um, but a lot of the recipes are very interchangeable. So, mm-hmm. for example, there's a recipe for black sea bass, but you can also use that same recipe for scup um, or fluke. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of the species are very interchangeable throughout the book. How many restaurants do you work with now? Um, we work with quite a few restaurants mm-hmm. now. It depends on kind of what projects we're working on. Um, we do a combination of both research and education and outreach. So we work with a lot of chefs who come um, and do cooking demonstrations with us to teach people about local seafood, but we'll also do dinner events. And then we also actually have restaurants that will participate in research with us as well. So it really varies mm-hmm. um, throughout 
throughout the year, but we have a lot of really great restaurants throughout the region, really, that um, that work with us. Yeah, I noticed there were a couple of local Newport ones. There are, yeah. Or a couple, I should say, a couple that were part of the Newport Restaurant Group. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've worked with a couple from the Newport Restaurant Group, as well as other Newport-based restaurants and chefs um, that are really awesome. And how, how did you get involved? You, you say you weren't the founder, but you're the first full-time employee. How did you come to this? Yeah. So I had, um, in 2016, I had just finished graduate school out in California, actually in San Diego at Scripps Institute of Oceanography. Um, and I knew I wanted to move back East. I'm from Southern Maine originally and wanted to move back to New England. Um, and so I was looking for jobs, uh, <laughs> after grad school and came across this one with eating with the ecosystem. And it was a really good match for what I was interested in doing, which was focusing on kind of sustainable seafood and fisheries and the interdisciplinary aspects of things. Um, seafood is very much an interdisciplinary thing. It's both the science as well as the economics and it's the marketing and it's the communications and all of that. And I find that part really interesting. Um, and so this was a really good fit for what I was looking to get into. And so I started with eating with the ecosystem in, um, the fall of 2016. And the reason they were able to bring me on was because they had received this grant to um, study what was called our um, other EBFM project, which stands for um, Ecosystem-Based Fisheries Marketing Strategies to Complement Ecosystem-Based Fisheries Management. So it's kind of a mouthful. mouthful. (laughs) Uh, But we were working with the University of Rhode Island um, and some scientists from there to calculate the ecological production of our local marine ecosystems. And then we were comparing that with what our fisheries were landing. And then eating the ecosystem big role within it was to coordinate a citizen science project to help collect data on the market availability of these species Mm -hmm. so that we could then figure out how do you have a better match between what the ecosystem systems actually producing and what we're actually eating as consumers. Right. Because I know I, we have a lot of lobstermen customers and the lobsters are they're crawling north, I guess. They are. Yeah. we've In southern New England, lobsters have definitely started kind of moving up into Maine, where I'm from, mm. um, and even up into Canada. Um, and so as we have warmer waters, we're seeing kind of this different, the shift in species. Um, and so while lobsters may be moving north, we still have, we have quite a few Jonah crabs now. And so those lobstermen are catching a lot of Jonah crabs. Right. Or we have things like black sea bass that have really moved in from the south. Um, and are actually eating some of the baby lobsters that are here now. But um, uh, but yeah, we see this kind of shift in species. Yeah, some of my cust- our, our commercial fishermen customers are convinced that the seals have opposable thumbs and the ability to open a lobster trap. They can a open lobster. a lobster trap. Um, they're actually very smart. I've seen um, like videos of them kind of, a lot of times the lobster traps have these little hooks mm-hmm. with a bungee cord kind of thing that keeps them closed and they'll snap that off and just open it right up. Um, <laughs> a boxed lunch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that even though the lobster population is is diminishing in this area, or I guess, according to your, your data, it doesn't prevent the restaurants from featuring it prominently. When people come to Newport or any, any part of Rhode Island by the sea, they want that lobster. Yeah. And we do still have lobster fisheries mm. around here. I mean, as a proof plenty, from the yeah. lobster fishermen that, you know, come into your right. store and shop here. Um, so we do still have lobster. And so sometimes like you know, it is local lobster that you're seeing on the menus. Or, I mean, if you go down to the Newport Lobster Shack on Pier 9, that's local lobster that's caught from local fishermen, which is great. Um, But at the same time, while 
local lobsters available. And, you know, as you said, in most restaurants, you can walk into and order lobster mm. or see lobster on the menu. A lot of our other local species really aren't available. Right. Um, it's a lot harder to find some of these other species. <laughs> yeah. What are, what are some other ones that are hard to get now? Um, so we actually did a, as part of that, um, research project with the University of Rhode Island, we ran this citizen science project to look at the availability of seafood in our New England retail marketplace. So we weren't necessarily looking at restaurants for that particular study. We were mm-hmm. looking at retail markets. So your typical seafood market, as well as the grocery stores, um, as well as some kind of more like specialty markets, like maybe an Asian style grocery store, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So pretty, or farmers markets, any place that really sold seafood. Um, and what we found was that actually lobster was our most available species. It was really? by our, oh, found good. by our citizen scientists about 80% of the time. Um, and then the other really popular species were things like sea scallops, softshell clams, cod, and haddock, yeah. which are, again, like if we think of classic New England seafood, those mm. are kind of our species. But some of our really abundant species here in New England, not that those aren't also abundant and should they should definitely be in our markets and on our menus, um, but things like scup, for example, here in Rhode Island or dogfish, butterfish, mm. whiting. These are all species that are landed in pretty big numbers here in Rhode Island, and they were found less than 10% of the time um, in our markets. And so that's pretty dramatically um, different. And so they're really, from what our study showed, underrepresented kind of in the marketplace. What drives that? Is it the, the fishermen, like I say, you said dogfish, they, they pick it up and there's no market for it so that they just throw it back or... Um, so it's a combination of things, and each species is kind of different. Mm-hmm. Um, so s- sometimes it's, yes, the fishermen don't have enough incentive to land a species, and so um, because the prices are very low, because right. there's not enough market demand. Right. Um, and so maybe they don't catch as many as they're technically allowed to catch um, under like the fisheries regulations. Um, but other times, they will land a species. They'll still be a pretty low-value species, um, but they'll get sent elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so dogfish is actually one that a lot of it goes over to Europe for fish and chips. You hear that? Right, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking it was cod or. <laughs> uh, we're in corn, like oh, fish and chips in Cornwall. Yeah, yeah actually, England um, and the United Kingdom is actually one of the places that a lot of the dogfish gets sent for. And a lot of times when you eat fish and chips over there, it's actually dogfish. Yeah, so there's a reason it's called fish and chips. Right. They keep it nice and vague. <laughs> not, not, not cod. Or, yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, I remember Cape Cod, obviously. It was it, the predominant species. And at one point, it had really gone down, the cod stock, hasn't it? Um, but, so cod is one of those species that at one point was, um, yeah, this population has definitely very much declined in like the 1980s-ish. Oh, okay. um, and they've struggled to kind of return back to historic levels. Mm-hmm. But um, the management on cod is incredibly strict. If you talk to any fishermen who are ground fishermen cods almost um like an it's a species they actually avoid most of the time they 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 try they don't try to catch it they just happen to catch it when they're catching other things Mm. because the regulations are so um they're allowed to catch very few kind of cod um and so they get fined if they or like they have to pay for more for more quota if they go over kind of the amount they're allowed to catch um but cod there's a lot of other kind of you know species out there that are caught. If people like cod, there's haddock, there's white hake, there's whiting, um, there's a variety of pollock, a variety of very similar flaky white fish. Dogfish makes a great fish and chips if you're into that. So um, there's quite a few options. Now and we can still eat cod. Fishermen are allowed to catch a certain amount. Sure. And so New England caught cod is still a good option. Mm. Um, now, I noticed uh, just... 
glancing through the website, you do a lot of hands-on research right down to going on a fishing boat. Yeah. Um, How so, frequently does that happen? So the research <clears throat> that I used to do more so before this job was, um, I've gone through a series of jobs, but that was more kind of hands-on me actually on the boat sometimes collecting the data. Mm-hmm. Now I do go out on the boat sometimes, but it's mostly to actually talk with the fishermen because that's a good opportunity to actually have conversations with them um, and to take pictures and help um, in terms of marketing some of these species that are really underrepresented in the marketplace. Um but our hands-on research now is actually more um, less involved in the ecological science side of things and more involved in the market research side of things and supply chains. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we involve a lot of citizen scientists to help us collect data throughout the New England seafood marketplace. And we also do a lot of interviews with seafood supply chain members and that kind of thing. Um, and so it's a little bit different um, hands-on research type of um, and what are The citizen scientists, are, are those like undergrad students or are they anybody who... Um, it, some of them are undergrad students. Yeah. And we've got some of our citizen scientists, it, it ranges in age literally from probably about 18 to about, I think our oldest one that we had participate in one of our projects was 78. So, right. um, so yeah, a wide range just of ages. with a real interest. In. Yeah. Just yeah. normal people like you and me who are interested in learning a little bit more about, um, our seafood and willing to, um, help us collect data. Mm. We talked about the, the restaurants and the cooking. What I also noticed, and I recognize one of the fishermen on your website, Al Eagles. Oh, I love Al. Yeah. <laughs> He's, I've known him for a long time. He's a great guy. What role do the, the fishermen play? Um, the fishermen play a variety of roles. Um, sometimes we'll have dinners. Um, it's kind of like those dinners that we got started doing, those educational dinners, and we'll invite the fishermen to come and speak and kind of share their side of things and why what we do is important, why eating the diversity of local species is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so fishermen can be kind of guests and speakers at our events. Um, they all might also be kind of research partners, um, helping share information that helps shape some of the research that we're doing. We really see them as kind of experts. Um, they're on the water every day for the most part, and they see the changes that are happening kind of in our local waters. And so um, they're really valuable resources. You also host cooking classes. We do. Yeah. We um, used to run what we called our school of fish classes that ran once a month at Hope in Maine up in Warren. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'd bring in local chefs um, and they would teach our guests how to prepare um, a local fish from a whole fish down to a couple, like two or three different dishes. Um, And then they'd get to enjoy kind of the meal that they learned how to create. And we took a little break from those just because we had a lot of other things going on in terms Mm -hmm. of research projects and we're a small organization and only have so much, um, so many hours in the day. Um, but we're going to start incorporating those kind of back into our programs, um, hopefully soon. Oh, good. And as we were getting set up, I kn- we were talking about, what was it, a boat? It, yeah. It's a cooking- <laughs> we have what we call our food boat, um, our scales and tails food boat, and it's a 19 foot skiff on a trailer. So it's not actually in the water anymore and right. would not float if we tried to put it in the water anymore. Um, but it's painted with local fish all over the outside. Um, it has counter height surfaces kind of on the inside and then a canopy that goes over the top. Mm. Um, and we're able to bring it around to outdoor events such as farmers markets or seafood festivals. And we host cooking demonstrations from the boat. 
boat. So we, again, partner with different local chefs. Sometimes we partner with local fishermen as well to come and share their stories and be experts on the subject matter. And we'll do demonstrations, show people this is how you break down a whole fish. This is how you prepare it using local ingredients from the farmer's market um, to prepare a tasty meal. And we also hand out free samples at those events. So they're a lot of fun. You get to try different um, species that maybe you haven't tried before and you're a little intimidated to buy for the first time and you get it prepared kind of expertly um, by a chef. So that's fun. Are people put off by the names of some fish? Yeah, definitely. Um, dogfish is one that people are like, you really need to change the name. Mm. Um, but it's not really up to us. Um, it's a FDA regulated. So it's a food, um, oh. and drug administration kind of regulated name. And so there's, for all species, there's certain names that you have to have them labeled at in the market. Sure. Um, and so you can use alternative names. There's certain ones that have multiple acceptable names, but mm. dogfish can also be called Cape Shark, for example. But beyond that, we can't you really can't change the name for yet. Marketing, you have to yeah. go through a whole process in order to do that. So how did, what was it? A, was it a famous chef in New York get away with renaming the Patagonian toothfish to Chilean sea bass? So that actually went through the whole process. It, it um, yeah. So wow. that was a while ago. That was one of the ones that everybody cites as kind of an example yeah, of, of changing the of. name. And it, you know, Patagonian toothfish doesn't really sound that appetizing, but um, Chilean sea bass sounds great. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> so name, name changes can work. It's just not quite as simple. As, as as just choosing a new name. Do you have any questions? They keep getting answered before I ask. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I was saying in education, people are ignorant, I think. You know, they know two or three different varieties, and that's what they're comfortable with. And what we know from our own experience, people in our family who eat the same stuff all the time and are, are afraid. No. <laughs> you all like that with vegetables, aren't you? Yeah, but, no. yeah, people who eat the same stuff all the time and they're afraid to branch out some are quite adventurous and will seek out new things but i think for the most part people like to stay with what they know don't they yeah and i think for a lot of people it they don't even know about the full variety of species that they could be trying we land over a hundred different species here in rhode island alone um so that's quite a variety that we could be eating um and see that variety on menus and you don't see that variety on menus and you don't see that variety in markets very often either um and so what we try to do is kind of bring awareness to what to eating you know first of all that there are, are all these local species but then also so why that's important. And for us, when you eat a wide variety of species, kind of in proportion to their natural abundances, then you actually have a positive effect on our marine ecosystems. And so in terms of sustainability, instead of just saying, oh, go eat this one fish, that that population is doing well and looking at things on a single species level. We're looking at things on a place-based level, an ecosystem level. And it's we're taking into consideration that, you know, species interact with each other, they interact with their habitats. Mm-hmm. And so we and we as humans are also part of that ecosystem. And so if we eat a wide variety of species, um, and as we said, kind of in proportion to their natural abundances, then we can have less of a negative impact on our marine ecosystems and maintain more of a natural balance in our marine food webs. And also the health side of things as well, like with any kind of diversity improves health and resilience. You know, if you eat like a friend of ours got mysterious ill a few years ago. And, I was going to bring that up. Oh yeah. And nobody could figure out what was wrong with her. And she'd been traveling and they thought she caught some exotic disease in <laughs> Egypt or whatever. And it turns out she got mercury poisoning because she oh, ate tuna every day. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Just tuna? Well, she ate, that was the only protein. She didn't eat oh. meat. Oh, interesting. And that was the only kind of fish that she was eating was tuna. And I imagine it's the one that came from the can. Probably. Yeah. 
But I don't know. But it, it, by eating that one variety, if there is a problem with that, you're, you know, just magnifying the problem. Whereas, you know, if you sort of hedge your bets and eat a bit of this and a bit of that, it's going to be healthier. Yeah. And on a, like a positive health note, different seafoods have different kind of positive like nutrients and stuff in them. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of shellfish have like some more iron and those kind of things where mm-hmm. some of our fattier fish, like a blue fish, for example, a little oilier fish, like a mackerel and things like that, they've got a lot of omega-3s, which are really heart healthy and good for you. So by eating a variety variety of species, you do kind of have positive health benefits as well. Mm-hmm. I was just remembering when we were, we were uh, I think we we're on Martha's Vineyard and uh we were at a restaurant and the woman gave a special, the, the hostess. And, yeah. and she said this particular fish that was the special was caught. And she pointed right out there and not missing a beat. You said, when? I know where we were. Though, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And in other words, it was. <laughs> That's a, all very well, but yeah, when? <laughs> yeah. I had a, a, a different experience. I was in Park City, Utah, a couple of years ago, snowboarding. And we went to a, a fairly nice restaurant. And their special was fresh fish. And then I thought, well, hang on a second. I'm in Utah. So how fresh is this fish? And if it really is truly fresh, it it flew here, you know, Mm -hmm. on a private jet or in the hold of an aircraft. And, you know, that's not very local. No, I mean, that's how the majority of our seafood supply chains kind of work, though. We've got these global seafood supply chains where we'll ship seafood all over the world. Um, But as you said, flying on an airplane, you know, that has other impacts such as, you know, carbon emissions and things like that. And so if you are eating local species, you are your seafood's traveling less far before it's going to hitting your plate, but you're also forming a connection with the habitat that's actually produced your seafood. And so you have an incentive to care about that area as well. Um, and you also are supporting your local fishing community at the same time. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of benefits, I think, to eating local. Well, I was just in Stop and Shop the other night at the seafood counter, and I noticed you, I was looking at the tags, and I just observed that they came from Thailand, Vietnam, Argentina, and Panama. The variety that were was on offer at the counter. Yeah, and I think if you look, walk into um, a seafood market, a lot of times what you see um, are kind of some of the more popular species that we as Americans really enjoy, um, which tend to be shrimp, salmon, tuna, um, sometimes you know swordfish, some of these like bigger mm. kind of popular. Fish. Um, and if we think about the species that we actually have here in our local waters, we don't really have local shrimp anymore, or we don't really have local shrimp. There's not really a shrimp fishery here in Rhode Island. Mm. Um, and there's no more local salmon. We, you know, dammed up our rivers during the Industrial Revolution and they lost those important habitats. And so we don't have wild Atlantic salmon. If there's Atlantic salmon that's from our area, it's farmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do have tuna, but you don't catch tuna here year round. It's only here during those warmer months. Right. Um, and swordfish is similar. Um, and so in order to have those spe- – but as consumers, a lot of times – we just think and expect that we can get whatever we want at any time um, of year. And so in order to meet that demand, they have to source seafood from all Mm. over the place. Um, And so sometimes those are other countries that, you know, may or may not have the same kind of regulations that we have. That's fascinating. Mm. And aren't there also giant fish processing ships offshore that, I mean, stuff can get caught in one area, shipped off to, China or whatever get processed and shipped back again. That's true. Yeah, um, a lot. So if you think about 
in the United States in general, we don't have a whole lot of um, seafood processing anymore. We've lost a lot of that important working waterfront area to, you know, maybe they've turned into hotels or other non-commercial uses. Um, so that's one, you know, thing. But we also don't have people that want to sit there and clean fish. It's labor intensive sometimes, or there are, you know, machines that can do it. And we've moved in that direction as well, but it's not typically a very high paying job. And so a lot of Americans are not really kind of gearing up to go like cut fish every day. And so we've outsourced those jobs to areas like China where the labor is less expensive. But that does mean that, for example, like squid is one of Rhode Island's biggest catches. Um, and, we have some squid processing here in Rhode Island, but a lot of our squid will get sent on, it will get frozen here, then sent on a boat over to um, China and then cut into those little rings and tentacles that we're used to seeing mm-hmm. um, and then sent back to, frozen again and then sent back to us um, wow. or sent all over the world as well. Um, but when you see local calamari, a lot of times that's the, that's the um, kind of journey it's taken before it ended up on your plate. So it really, even though it's Rhode Island's uh, dish, yeah, <laughs> it, it does some traveling. It does still, yeah. <laughs> so as a consumer, what can you do to ensure that the fish that you're eating is locally caught and hasn't really, you know, been around traveling the world, that you're actually getting it fresh and, you know, you're supporting the local industry. So one thing that you can do um, is just ask for local and show your markets um, and your restaurants and stuff like that, that you actually care that the seafood that you're eating is local and has come from your local waters. And so asking for it creates that demand and really incentivizes the restaurant to actually make a change or or market to make a change if they aren't already serving local. Um, A lot of places do have quite a, a selection of local as well. And so supporting those places that are doing that is always great. Another thing is if we're talking about processing, if you're willing to eat a whole fish or a whole or like process, you know, clean a fish at home yourself or a squid at home yourself, even um, it's actually not quite as difficult as a lot of people think it is. Um, and then you're avoiding that processing, so you're just getting, for example, with squid, it's called dirty squid. It's a whole squid. It still has the ink sac and mm. and guts inside, but it's actually a really simple, quick cleaning process. Um, and so it's something that you could do at home and that squid wouldn't have traveled all over all the way over to China just so you could cut it. Um, then, we, as I said, there is some local processing for squid mm. as well. And so you can kind of look even a lot of times on the box um, if it's a frozen product and see it, where it was processed as well as where it was um, caught. Oh. Speaking of local, I noticed there's a – I guess it's, it's an oyster farm uh, south of the Jamestown Bridge, correct? Yep. Yeah, and that's so. That's something that's been growing. I don't. That wasn't there long ago when I was a kid. Obviously, yeah, that's a oyster new- aquaculture um, in in general has really kind of I feel like blossomed in the, at least the last ten years, if mm. not more, and definitely in the last you know five or six years, I would say it's gotten increasingly popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, we're seeing more and more kind of various forms of aquaculture. Um, oysters and kelp kind of being two big ones mm-hmm. here in Rhode Island and you know different there's different scales of, of aquaculture as well and so depending on um, you know just like there can be different scales of regular agriculture there's you know some scale, scales that are yeah. maybe harm the environment some that are actually really great 
What's yeah. a healthy amount of seafood to eat in the course of one week? So seafood is actually really good for you. Mm. And um, I know you mentioned the story with your friend um, who you know ate tuna every day, and that was the only protein source. So it sounds like she was kind of eating an extreme amount of canned tuna. Um, but one example that I normally give um, is that there's a famous author, his name is Paul Greenberg, and he's written a couple different books related to seafood. One's called Four Fish. The other one's called American Seafood. And he did a documentary called The Fish on My Plate with PBS, I believe. Um, and for an entire year, he ate seafood for every meal. Um, so seafood was part of three meals a day for him for an entire year. So that's like a pretty extreme amount of seafood. Um, and he had doctors that were monitoring him and, him and things like that. Um, and he was eating kind of a combination of different species. Obviously, he wasn't just eating tuna. Um, <laughs> but he was eating an extreme amount. And he was, they found out kind of by the end of it that his health benefits because was were kind of like balanced out because he was eating a lot of really good benefits like omega threes and things like that. And then he also did have higher mercury levels than Mm. you know the average person. Um, So, but he was perfectly fine at the end of a year eating like three times a day seafood every single day. So that's like kind of the extreme I would say. Where was he located again? um, He he was located in New York. He lives in in New York. York. Okay. Um, The FDA, I believe recommends that you eat seafood. I think you can eat it up to three times or like actually I eat seafood. I eat seafood probably about four or five times a week. Um, I eat seafood all the time. Um, and my doctor's office visits have always been good. I eat a lot of seafood and the average American eats about 15 pounds of seafood a year, but FDA is actually wants us to continue to eat more. They are worried that they scared actually people off with the mercury warnings. Um, and so they're actually kind of changing their course a little bit and actually mm-hmm. encouraging people to eat seafood at least twice a week is their their current recommendation. What's your um, favorite seafood to eat? Um, so I grew up in Maine. Um, so lobsters are still my absolute favorite. Right. Um, but I, I really like a lot of different, um, a lot of different species. I really love Jonah crab. Um, I love pretty much any clam or shellfish, um, really into trying kind of different types of fish and the variety I think is what makes seafood actually really interesting. Mm. When you eat lobster, do you do it in the classic fashion or the, uh, do you make lobster mac and cheese or lobster with scrambled <laughs> um, eggs? My favorite is just the classic, like mm. steamed with some melted butter. Um, and you can, I feel like you can't go wrong with that, but I do like a, you know, an, a different kind of uh, other variations. And, you know, it's kind of fun sometimes to go and have it prepared by like a fancy chef and they do these like different things that I would never have tried before. Sure. Um, yeah. What's your favorite seafood? Um, I, I guess I like salmon, don't I? You I'm like bad. Yeah. yeah, but I'm willing to give anything a go. I'm a bit squeamish when it comes to lobster. It's <laughs> all <laughs> right, more for me. Yeah. Oh, it's always been presented. Well, you got to kind of crack it out of its shell. Yeah, it's a whole experience. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you can really see what it was, I'm a little, because I, I stopped eating meat a few years ago as well. So I am, if it, if it looks like food, I'm okay. But if it looks like a creature, it kind of, uh, yeah, but uh, um, I had my first oyster a couple of years Go on, ago. Say it. Tell her what you really call it. <laughs> well, they never appeal to me. They just look like something that you That's pull. That's the polite version. <laughs> no, they look like something that you pull out your nose, basically. <laughs> <laughs> However, I tried one because we went to some party and they're all there and they were free, and I thought, well, I'll give it a go. 
actually okay. <laughs> yeah, I think I, they taste like the ocean. Um, it's yeah. it's got you know whatever whatever they've been growing in, whatever plankton they've been eating, and the kind of characteristics of that water body are really kind of come out in the flavor. Yeah, I think I had some good fresh ones, and they were very pleasant. The first time I encountered one, probably wasn't the ideal place. Was a Blackpool Pleasure Beach, which is it's sort of like. Um, Oh, Coney Island. <laughs> Coney Island combined with Las Vegas. Not a good place. And it was just a stall in the, the um, like a fairground. And um, I didn't, it, I just had took a smell and I was like, no, 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 well, I don't think so. smell that bad. Right? Uh, well, if you'd ever seen the, the, the sea at Blackpool, you wouldn't want to eat anything. That's <laughs> a suggestion that you would ever been in there. It, yeah. So that wasn't the ideal introduction. But the ones around here, pretty good. <laughs> if, you're, if you're listening in Blackpool right now, we apologize. <laughs> well, I'm sure the people you'll be in Blackpool there. In, you'll be there in no a few illusions. weeks. You'll I'm be... not going back to Blackpool. But oh, you're not. Okay. No, no. But um, yeah, if the wind blew the wrong direction, it just didn't smell good. With Blackpool I, uh, in general. <laughs> I hadn't fished since I was about 12 years old. I think I caught like trout in a pond in northern Rhode Island somewhere. And last summer, my friend took me out in his center console we just went off Breton reef fishing for stripers and we we caught quite a few uh they were all undersized and he was he's very conscious and you know we made sure he said even if they were of the approved uh size he would have thrown them back because it was i guess it was they were all coming up quite right at the the limit and he said he would because he wants them to get big and he was very conscious but i hadn't i hadn't fished other than one time uh i was sailing to bermuda and we were trolling a lure and when I say trolling, we didn't even have it on a, a rod and reel. It was on sort of this thing you'd reel in a kite with. <laughs> and we, we hooked a, I guess it's a mahi-mahi. And we, we reeled it in. And I was on deck on watch with the Swedish woman. And we got it. And it's flopping around in the cockpit. And I suddenly realized I had no idea what to do next. Because <laughs> I hadn't fished since I was 12. And that fish was, you know, a small Much trout. smaller. Yeah, mahi and or not a small fish. around. And I'm like, I was looking for a knife. I didn't see one. I thought, well, I guess I'll get a winch handle and hit it over the head. Maybe that'll stop it. And the captain came running up and said, don't do it. You'll make a mess of the boat. And he took uh, – he had a bottle of rum and he just threw a bit of rum in its gill and that was the end of the fish. Oh, that's a new trick. I actually didn't know that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then the fish was completely catatonic. And, and from there, he took it He took it and got a board out and, and he had a fillet knife and he, yeah, he, cleaned he, it he did and all he, he knew what to do. So that was the – freshest fish i'd ever eaten because we, we had it that that, that afternoon night, yeah. that night <laughs> and then the second freshest fish i ever had was uh gene's wedding oh that was good that it was a swordfish it had just been brought in and it was my friend's wedding and instead of hiring catering or whatever he he just went down to the dock well he did have someone to cook but he went down to the docks and picked his own seafood well if you can do that i mean it doesn't get much fresher right like yeah. and it's <laughs> it was amazing wasn't it it, it was yeah. yeah you could tell the difference from some you know you went to a fish market and you don't know how long it's been on ice and going in and out and yeah, I think that like one thing that we've really noticed with our citizen science projects and kind of their experience going into fish markets was um, that your relationship with your fishmonger can be really important. So the person selling you your seafood um, and so 
people by asking questions and kind of talking to the person behind the counter really started to really like learn more about their seafood, but also kind of form that relationship. So the fishmongers would let them know and be like, Hey, I just got this in. I think you're going to really like it. You should try it mm. or um, things like that. And so they got kind of like insider tips. Yeah. Um, and so that's always kind of a nice benefit is building that relationship. Mm. And also trust as well. If you've got somebody knowledgeable like that, yeah, built up a bit of a rapport with, you know, they could show you something exotic that you'd never tried before and, you know, give you a couple of tips on how to how to prepare, prepare it. it. Yeah, because yeah, that's happened in the past. When I lived in England, I lived in the Midlands, as far away as you could get from the ocean. But I remember going to the local market one day and uh, my boyfriend at the time, he got all chatty with the, the fish guy there and he said, oh, we've just got these in. It was a red snapper or something. And he said, like, well, what, what do you do with that? Oh, well, yeah. and so he was excited to bring that home and yeah, give it a go. Exactly. Whereas under normal circumstances, <laughs> without any guidance, you'd look along and think, oh, I wouldn't know where to start with that. So Right, by asking say. those questions, like mm-hmm. the fishmongers a lot of times have quite a bit of information um, yeah. that they don't necessarily, aren't necessarily going to offer up unless if you show interest, kind of. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, obviously, you work a lot with commercial fishermen. Does your program at all work with recreational or sport fishermen? Um, we haven't done a whole lot of targeted kind of work with recreational or sports fishermen yet, although a lot of our citizen scientists um, or just people who come to our events also happen to be recreational or sports fishermen. They mm. tend to love seafood and love fishing and they have they'll go and catch their own fish and so they are game to kind of work with whole fish and are looking to learn new skills. Um, yeah. And of course, they're local species. So things like sea robin and scup and black sea bass. Um, and so a lot of our people that do follow eating with the ecosystem and are into what we do, do happen to also recreationally fish. And with your educational programs, um, do you ever reach out to students like in classrooms um, or is it we, mostly adults? <clears throat> just because we're a small organization, we haven't done a whole lot with school programs yet. We've done um, some talks at college level mm. um, at University of Rhode Island and um, at SMAS, which is in the School of Marine Science and Technology in New Bedford um, and things like that. But we haven't done a whole lot with elementary age children yet. I think it's something that's you know important is developing um, the kind of taste for seafood young. Um, but mm. so far, we're you know fairly limited in terms of how many different things that we can work on at one time. On your website, there's all the people that you're involved with, who we've talked about, the commercial fishermen and and the chefs. You also mentioned policymakers. How important are they? Um, so I feel like a lot of times when people hear policymakers and they think seafood, they think of more like fisheries management kind of. Oh, I was thinking uh, like politicians or um, legislators. Okay, that, that, yeah. yeah. So we work actually more in the food systems kind of realm mm. um, and making sure that um, we're members of Food Solutions New England, for example, mm-hmm. which is a network of food professionals, um, whether it's nonprofits like us or actual producers or um, kind of other um, businesses and um, different supply chain businesses and things like that, all working towards kind of a goal of um, producing or eating more um, food that comes from the region. So their, mm. their goal is the 50 by 60 goal. So to have New England have 50% of their, eat 50% of their food that came from New England by 2060 kind of. And so... Um, Where are we now? 
we're, we're pretty far off oh, from that. Okay. <laughs> um, but that's, that's kind of like an aspirational wow. goal that they're working towards. And in, in some cases, that there's there's policy change that needs to happen to kind of encourage that and mm. also make that kind of possible. And so we work a lot with like um, food policy councils and that kind of um, work to help support local food policies that help support local seafood and eating a wider variety and having our institutions and um, our kind of different groups out there purchase local seafood. One of the things I saw on the website was this thing called Market Blitz. Yeah. What's that? Um, So this is another citizen science project that we um, run. And in the past two years, we've run it in actually March each year. And we've worked with a group of students from the University of Rhode Island um, to help us kind of collect and analyze the data. And what the Market Blitz is, is we, we solicit citizen scientists, volunteers from all over New England. Um, and we assign everybody a market or two or three mm-hmm. to, uh, to visit. Um, and you'd visit your market and you'd record data on what's available in the seafood case. So the species names, where they're from, um, what product form they're in. So if they're mm-hmm. like a whole fish or filet, that kind of information. Um, and then we'd take that information and we kind of analyze it and look at, you know, what percentage of the species in our seafood cases are local. You know, what countries are seafood kind of coming from? What are the most popular species that we're seeing? Mm. And the goal with it is to really track, um, use this data to be able to track kind of changes over time. Um, And it also kind of gives us a snapshot of this is actually what's available um, Mm. to consumers in New England. And then this is kind of a starting off point. Hopefully we can continue to build and increase that percentage that's local and increase the diversity of species that we're seeing and all of that. Um, And so we um, are going to not actually be running it in March this year. We are deciding to switch it um, this year and run it in October, which will be National Seafood Month um, and kind of is a better time for seafood in New England also in terms of a wider variety of species being right. available. So if we're collecting data, that's a good time for us to to collect it. So you, get, you send them to not just a, the, like a chain grocery store, but s- small fish markets that um, specialize markets in fish? Markets all over New England that sell seafood. So it can be chain grocery stores. Okay. It can also be small retail markets that you know, mm-hmm. are specifically seafood focused. Um, so a wide variety. Yeah. I think I mentioned earlier when I'm you know, when you're in a chain grocery store, you sort of see the same stuff. But when I've been like, say out on Martha's Vineyard and there's several, there's many small fish markets mm-hmm. there that you can easily pop from one to the next. And it, what they have is what they have, you know, yeah. it's, it's what came in right there on, you know, in Menemsha, say, for example. Yeah. Nantucket, I think I actually mm-hmm. haven't been out there, but f- um, from what I've heard, I think, you know, like you kind of have a unique situation out there with, with, um, you know, Basically, the fishermen are landing it kind right. of right there, which is pretty cool. Um, but I, what we saw with our um, Eat Like a Fish Citizen Scientists, which were different than our Market Blitz Citizen Scientists, but our Eat Like a Fish Citizen Scientists, they were the ones that helped us collect data on that bigger research project, the other EBFM one. And for six months, we had between May and October, um, we had 86 citizen scientists from all around New England. And every week, I assigned them a random assignment. Yeah, everybody's assignment was different of four out of 52 possible species. And some of these were more common local species, um, mm. like, or like more popular local species, like lobsters and haddock right. and, you know, cod and that kind of thing. And then some of them were things that were a little bit less common, um, and less well known to the average, um, consumer, such as sea robin and 
scup and mm-hmm. um, razor clams and skate, things like that. And so every week they'd visit up to three markets um, and they'd record whether or not their species were available. Um, and then if they found one or more of their fish, they chose which one they wanted to buy, take home, um, and they'd record their experience both cooking and eating that fish. And we then analyzed all of the data. They visited close um, to 400 different markets um, wow. throughout the six months, um, individual markets, and they made close to 3,000, about 3,000 different market visits. So we had a lot of data um, from that project. And what we did notice was that our citizen scientists ha- had a better had better luck finding their species at seafood markets. That was kind uh, of where they okay. were most successful. Right. Um, and supermarkets were where they were least successful. But that being said, I ended up doing a series of interviews with a number of retail markets, including supermarkets. And supermarkets are definitely making an effort, I would say, to carry more local species. Um, And I went through and interviewed a bunch of them and actually saw a bunch of different local species that I actually didn't even realize were available in supermarkets. Things like Acadian redfish were whole in Mm. in markets. I saw whole scup. I saw monkfish available. A bunch of different things Mm. that I was actually really pleasantly surprised to see. So I think that supermarkets are definitely kind of working towards carrying more local species, which is really great. And people going in and asking for those local species really helps. Um, Yeah, I imagine. Now, did the citizen scientists pay for their own seafood or does they that, did yeah, yeah. So, they, so as part of the project they paid for their own seafood we did provide a certain percentage of them um, a stipend mm. um, to help kind of um, so that anybody could participate that wanted to cost wasn't going to be a prohibiting factor um, so we did provide a stipend for a group of them so is, is the nonprofit funded um, solely through donations um, we're grants? primarily funded through grants, grants um, right. where we do get some donations as well um, but we are primarily a grant funded organization the best way I guess the cookbook was what interested me if somebody wants to look at order the cookbook or learn more about what we've talked about the website is your best portal yeah our website's um eatingwiththeecosystem.org mm-hmm. and we have our cookbook available for sale we also have a bunch of information on the website about our organization and some of the projects that we are participating in we post the different events when those are coming up um so the website's a great place to kind of Go for information. You can also sign up on the website for our newsletter. Um, and we send out a monthly newsletter that kind of updates you on different projects that we're working on. And right. again, if we have events coming up and things like that. And then the cookbook is also available actually in a number of retail markets mm. as well as bookstores all throughout New England. Um, and there's a list of the available where okay. it's available right. on our website as well. What would you say are the biggest challenges that you're facing? For us, we're a really small organization. I'm the only full-time employee. We have a part-time science advisor, and then we have a part-time bookkeeper, as well as a volunteer board. And there's a lot of things that we would love to do, um, but we're short on manpower (laughs) as a small organization. So I think one of our goals is to hopefully raise a little bit more money and bring on more help um, so that we can accomplish more things. What's the help that you think you, you would most benefit from? More scientists? Um, I think one of our goals is definitely to bring on more scientists that can help us with some of the analysis. And so one of the programs that we really want to get Um, continue to work on and get going and do a little bit more on is our habitat program, connecting seafood consumers with habitat restoration and and protecting local seafood Mm. habitat um, and realizing the importance of that. Um, And so hopefully um, down the line, we'll be able to do that. I've got a question. I I spotted this, so I took a picture of it. It was in a 
a local market, and they had a whole salmon mm-hmm. featured. Now, I don't know where it's from, but they, whoever did the display thought it would be clever to put, I guess, a bit of prey in the salmon's <laughs> mouth. So I want to show you this picture and tell me if you think that's the appropriate prey. Um, it's not the appropriate prey, but I actually love the fish that's in its mouth. That's a butterfish. Um, so, oh. Uh, I've never known you had butterfish. So butterfish are actually pretty cute um, little fish. They're about the size of the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're caught here, actually, in Rhode Island as bycatch in the squid fishery quite often. Um, and they're actually really tasty. They're really good. Um, fried whole is one of my favorite ways to have them. Oh. Um, or you can you can steam them, actually, even. Or um, the Japanese will kind of cure them a little bit before. Um, you can do a lot. You can grill them. There's a lot of options kind of for butterfish. But they're really tasty. Tasty little fish. She just zoomed in and looked at it and pointed at it like it was a cute puppy. (laughs) (laughs) He looks quite sad. Well, you would be too if you were frozen and in the mouth of a salmon. (laughs) That's odd because not only did they not mention whether or not the butterfish came with the whole salmon, they didn't. I didn't see any other butterfish. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Maybe they sold out of them. Um, yeah. <laughs> or he's, yeah. he's a prop. He's garnish. Yeah, yeah he's garnish. <laughs> we also have one other resource that um, your listeners might be interested in is we have, um, in addition to our website, we also have a Facebook group um, called New oh. England Seafoodies, which is kind of like an online seafood club for anybody who is interested in le- learning more about their local seafood and kind of nerding out on seafood. And so um, it's called New England Seafoodies. Anybody can join. And what we do is... We share um, some information, including videos of what fishermen are actually catching um, oh. on in somewhat of a real time basis. So we share actually a picture today that a fisherman had texted me of some haddock and pollock and cod that he had just caught. Um, so that kind of lets you wow. know this is in season. This is what fishermen are catching, um, and we share videos of them catching them as well. Um, and then. You can then, as a consumer, go out and ask the species in the marketplace and help create demand for some of these lesser-known species as well um, and know what's kind of fresh and local. We also will share recipes on there. Um, and it's also an opportunity for you as consumers to ask us questions or ask fellow seafood lovers questions. And so we had people... Um, asking, you know, what's a really good fish to make stock from, like fish stock? Mm. And and then a bunch of people from all over, you know, it's, it's the internet. So a bunch of people kind of write chime in and in. chime yeah. in about their different options. And they also, you're, it's kind of a good place if you to brag about your seafood dishes that you created. So um, if you create a really pretty, beautiful local seafood dish that you're proud of, you can share it on there and we'll all kind of give you praise um, and say how delicious it looks. Um, so it's a good, really, really good resource for people that are looking to learn more. We'll have to check that out. And yeah, that what, right. what's the name of that Facebook group again? It's called New England Seafoodies. So seafood, I-E-S, like foodies. Right. Gotcha. Okay. And is that in addition to you have a normal social media presence? As we well. do, yeah. yeah. So you can also follow Eating with the Ecosystem um, on Instagram, Facebook, etc. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the, that group sounds like it's more interactive and yeah. So that group is um, you you try you join. I accept you, um, which I accept everybody, mm-hmm. um, and then you get to interact kind of with that group a little bit more and kind of post add questions Maybe, uh, that I'll kind of broaden thing. Broaden my cooking. My day. <laughs> <laughs> that. I do. I do most of the cooking. When she became a vegetarian, I was suddenly. Well, I, I sort of followed you a little bit. I still do eat some meat, but I was really struggling to find good pr- sources of protein without eating fish seven days a week. You know, particularly in the evening. <laughs> but yeah, we, we, we made out all right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Heaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.